0: Welcome back to the Sportsmail podcast. Today's episode, I'm starting with an open on college football. The regular season has come to a close. Five things I think we learned from this season because it was kind of a shifting point, I think, in the college football landscape going forward. And we got news that the playoff is changing. So that's a good time to talk about the college football landscape in general. Then we have a long extended segment with Andrew Sullivan on the NBA season. So far, we give our quarterly report, kind of talk about some MVP front runners and some teams that have both impressed us and disappointed us so far. Finally, I'm joined once again by my brother, Drew Miller. We're going to be doing a Disney character starting five draft. Sounds convoluted. We're going to be picking a starting lineup from Disney characters to make uh, what we think is the best basketball starting five in the world. So I thank you once again for listening and let's get into the episode. All right, the opening today, we're talking about some college football. The regular season is over. We're heading into championship Saturday as I'm recording this, but I'm not even really going to talk about championship Saturday and preview it because to me, this one's pretty boring this year, right? Georgia should beat LSU. They should be the one seed. Michigan should be Purdue. They should be the two seed. And then USC and TCU are the wild cards, but I would prefer them to get in anyways if one of them lose loses it looks like Ohio State would be the next one in because they put the committee put them at 5 Alabama at 6. But instead what I want to do is I want to look at five things I think I've learned from this college football season and just five general takeaways uh, right now in the college football landscape. So, first thing that I think we need to mention I think college football has finally gotten some parity back. You know, there's been a complaint for a while now that it's the same teams at the top every year. We're tired of seeing that. And I really do think it felt like this year, and we've seen it, I think, maybe the last couple years with, and you can blame it on NIL, you can blame it on the transfer portal. We've officially seen, I think, the, the dominance of college football may be done for a while until a team kind of figures out how to do it in this new age. You think about Alabama. I definitely don't think they're done as a national championship contender and I'll talk about that as my last takeaway from college football but I think just in now in this era that there is no team that's going to be dominant anymore and you can say Georgia this year and that's could be true they could go on once again and have an undefeated national championship season but even them this year I think it's more of a case that there is no other good team to really challenge them that 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 they're so dominant. I mean, they've been vulnerable at times this season. And so I think we finally have parity back in college football and it's good to see even though I'm, you know, sad in Alabama couldn't be better this year. And there is a legitimate case, I think, that you could say the the top 15 teams in the country on any given night could beat each other. And that's something we haven't been able to say for a while. Because um, you've seen it in the playoff games early on this season, uh, in the last couple of years. It's just been dominance by the Alabamas, by the Clemsons, by the Georgias of the world. And I would like to think this year we're going to see a little bit different. Although Georgia, I think, could dominate and, and Michigan could as well. But just from overall, the top you know, 15 teams in the league are all pretty even this season. And I definitely think that's a good thing for college football. Which leads me to my number two takeaway. And it kind of goes hand in hand is that it was just finalized that the 12-team playoff is coming to college football. And I think it's this season has been great for supporters of that. And it's actually set us up for it. Because in this era of transfers, in this era of NIL, and there is no dominant team necessarily anymore. And like I said, you can make the case Georgia is still that this season. But I really do think that the 12-team format, if it stays like it has been, is going to work. Because you could tell me right now, you know, five through twelve, we'll just kind of look at the teams. You know, we thought that Ohio State was one of the top four, but you look at their schedule and their wins, none of them are impressive, and then they got walled by Michigan. So Ohio State, Alabama, Tennessee, Penn State, Clemson, Kansas State, Utah, and Washington. And then even you go below that to Florida State LSU, you can't tell me that any of those teams couldn't beat each other. Alabama is the number six team in the country right now. But they could have easily lost to Texas. They could have easily lost to A&M. They could have easily lost to Ole Miss. They're not some juggernaut. And I do think that they could be beaten by any of those teams that I listed. And the same is true for any of those teams as well. And so this really gives credence, I think, to a 12-team playoff. USC, TCU, Michigan, Georgia may be a little bit better than all of those. But at least put them up head-to-head against some of these teams. And so I think this season... Goes hand in hand with the parody that I mentioned in my first takeaway. The twelve team playoff is now coming, and I was very much against it at first because I thought, wow, we're still going to just see a slaughter. I'm not so sure anymore. And I do think it's going to be good to finally see some of these high stakes games in the playoffs played in some of these actually at some campuses. And it'll be cool to to see some of these university get those high level games. All right, my third takeaway. To me, this season has proved that it is more important. And most important, to have the right coach at the right place than to just have a, a good team. And what I mean by that is this, is that with the parity that we've seen, we finally started to see some of these programs who for long have been known as perennial powerhouses kind of coming back because they finally got the right coach and they jump, were jump-started immediately. You think about USC. They've struggled for now a decade to be relevant again. They get Lincoln Riley in there, and suddenly they're in the playoff conversation and with the win in the Pac-12 championship game, we'll be in the playoff. You think about Tennessee, who has been dormant for 15, 20 years, you know, you could say. They finally get Josh Heupel, an exciting offense in there that models after the college football landscape currently. They had a really good chance to be in the playoff if they don't lose to South Carolina. And they beat Alabama this year, which they had done in 15 years. And so I say all this to say this. That in the era of transfer, in the era of NIL, you're going to have more than ever players going to where they think gives them the best chance to make money. and, And it's not as much about going to that elite program anymore. And so I do think now this season has proven, you look at LSU and Brian Kelly, terrible year last year under Coach O. Now they're back to being relevant again, and they're playing in the SEC championship game. The right coach and in the right program matters. And I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to see some of these big name programs start to turn around if they get the right coach in place. And maybe, who knows, maybe Nebraska will finally figure it out with Matt Rule. All right, takeaway number four. I know I'm kind of going through these quickly, but I do think there's not a a lot to talk about necessarily from what just the takeaway is. Fourth thing I noticed is that, to me, it's sad now that the conferences are all going to change. I really think in a four-team format, it made sense to kind of converge all these conferences because then you could say, well, look, all these teams are together. We don't have to worry about picking one team from each one. And that made sense then to kind of group us into more like four main conferences. But now, moving to a 12-team playoff You're going to have space to include all these teams. And it saddens me now that with the parity that I mentioned earlier, all these takeaways go hand in hand, that we're now going to see all these, you know, geographical regional rivalries kind of go away because the Pac-12 is actually a really good conference this year. And they have a lot of teams, I think, that are interesting to watch. The Oregon-Oregon State game was actually relevant. Both those teams were ranked. Oregon State won. When is the last time we said that? USC and UCLA are good again. And now they're going to be moving to the Big Ten. It just feels like we're moving too much towards trying to create an NFL-type system. And I think it's sad. The Big 12, too. You look at it from top to bottom. Those conferences, to me, are better than the Big Ten this year. And so it's sad to me that we're moving towards you know, a bunch of kind of mega conferences. The SEC is still the SEC, but I'm not even sure that I like uh, Texas and Oklahoma coming in, although I do think it'll be fun to play those two teams every season. And so I don't really know where a lot of people fall on that side of the spectrum. I think more so people are sad that the conferences are being kind of demolished, if you will. But I do think with the parity coming in, we could have kept the conferences, and especially with the 12-team playoff, there's now room to get all those different conference champions in and let them decide it in the playoff instead of in the regular season. All right, last takeaway. All my takes up to this point have been kind of general in the college football landscape. This last one is specific, and it is about Alabama. And I know I go there. I know that's the team I cover, whatever. But, I mean, obviously Alabama has been the powerhouse for the last decade or so. And with this parity, I think it's interesting to kind of take a look at them. And Clemson as well kind of falls into this. I don't think Alabama is even remotely close to being done as a national championship contender. They could easily win next year. They could easily win a couple in the next couple of years. But I do think this level of dominance that we've seen from them is done. And you can say it's maybe because Saban has had to change the way he's coached. It's not the same anymore. The players are different because of NIL and the transfer portal. Whatever it is, it may be. Alabama has not looked like the same dominant force this year. And I think there are a variety of reasons. But I think overall, just the college football landscape has changed. And Alabama just isn't going to be able to dominate anymore like they have been. They didn't have an elite offense like we've seen in previous years, and I think that's kind of been the crutch they've leaned on to not get to this point sooner. You know, it's funny. When you don't have Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith and Jalen Hurts and Tua Tungvaloa and all those guys on your team, you're suddenly not as good. But we really have seen this year that it's been Bryce Young and not much else, and so the team hasn't been as good. And now with the transfer portal, all these guys don't have to stay. So we've seen all these guys who haven't developed like they should have, and they don't feel like they are getting the recognition they deserve at Alabama, guess what they're doing? They're transferring out. And I think we're going to see probably more players from this program, whether it be after the bowl game or whether it be before, decide to transfer. And I think that that situation alone is not going to allow these big teams to dominate anymore. It's not just Alabama. We've seen it with Clemson. We've seen it with other teams as well, kind of take a step back. And f- quite frankly, as much as I want Alabama to win every year, I think that's good for college football. It's more exciting when more teams have a chance to be good. And so, if you're one of those who is on the fire saving train, he's lost it, whatever, the-, the team is done. I don't think that's the case at all. It's just that we can't expect a level of dominance where they're winning championship after championship anymore. And I think that, once again, goes back to my original take of college football's parody finally becoming what we wanted it to be in the 12 team playoff coming into effect and and hopefully that creates more excitement towards the end all right those are my five takeaways from the college football season like I said championship Saturday is this this week and I'm really hoping we see the four teams they have right now and that is Georgia Michigan TCU and USC I think that would be a nice change of pace and a really interesting playoff because quite frankly I don't think Ohio State or Alabama deserve to make it this season All right, we're now going to move into talking about the NBA with Andrew Sullivan. We got almost, I think, an hour on that. And then we're going to conclude, like I said, with a Disney character starting five draft. Really excited to be able to do that. So we're going to take a quick break, and then you'll hear from me and Andrew on the other side. All right, we're a quarter of the way through the NBA season, and I thought it'd be a good time to start talking about it. We we weren't able to do a preview because we weren't recording during there, or at least I wasn't at the beginning of the NBA season. But I'm joined by Andrew Sullivan now. We're going to kind of do a quick overview of the NBA uh, and kind of where we're at. Obviously, only a quarter of the way in. The NBA is moving more and more towards, it's a very playoff-oriented sport. The regular season doesn't mean quite as much, but I still think there's a lot that we have learned early on. So let's start by just breaking down an overview of the league, and we're going to start in the West. And Andrew, I know your thunder are out there, but they're obviously kind of at the bottom of the West, but that's kind of what I want to talk about is that there really is no top or bottom early on in the season of the West. I think the last couple of days, we've seen a little more separation by the Suns, but right now there's only four and a half games separating the Mavericks who are the 11 seed from the Suns who are the one seed. So I think that's kind of been the biggest thing early on, especially in that conference, is that there seems to be no clear hierarchy there of who is the better teams. Because I really do think, I mean, obviously the Suns may separate themselves, but you could honestly make an argument that any of those teams could end up being one of the higher seeds in the conference. So why is that, you think, early on in the season?
1: Yeah, to me the the reason for that is because we have teams that we thought that were going to be better that are underachieving and then we have teams that we thought were going to be worse that are overachieving. And they're all kind of meeting there right in the middle, right? You have you know, you have the Grizzlies, the Clippers, the Mavericks, the Warriors all, you know, a little further down to earth than we thought they might be. And then you have teams like the Jazz, the Kings, um if the if you group the Pelicans in there, maybe them um, and then if you depending on whether you want to include the thunder in that group a lot of teams that have been a little better than we thought and even the teams at the top you know phoenix has been without chris paul they've been surprisingly good to start the year the nuggets had a little bit of a slow start but they've started to heat up as they continue to gel with that lineup so it's it's been a very balanced year so far and you also have some teams like the Clippers who just have to get healthy at some point, and that's basically going to make or break their whole season. But a lot of different factors for these teams, pulling them down, I think we're going to get into some specific teams here. But yeah, in general, you've got bad teams that are overachieving, and you've got good teams that are underachieving, and it's it's created a lot of slop so far to start the season.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors to explain this, and you know, one of them is obviously early on in the season is obviously when the most people are healthy the everyone's trying at this point for the most part the the tanking really hasn't happened yet but also i think just in general the nba is at a place right now and you can maybe disagree with this i don't know but everyone has good players it's not like you know in the the early 2000s mid 2000s there were not very many good rosters in the nba if you look at that and there was it was a hierarchy of good players now everyone in the league can kind of play And, you know, you have your stars, you have your kind of role players, and then even the young players can kind of do night to night, they can become a star player. So I think it's just not as easy for a top team to win every game because you look at a team, like we'll take your Thunder, for example. Like Shea is going to give you 30 every night. And so if you have a good supporting cast that night from the rest of the Thunder players, they're not an easy team to beat. So I think it's just, we've kind of gone to a point in the league where everyone can score now it's not any easy wins night to night. And a lot of it is the separation factor is chemistry and star power. And a lot of these teams, like you mentioned, that were supposed to be good are struggling finding chemistry or their stars are hurt or not playing well. And so it's just kind of caused a hodgepodge, especially out in the West. And I think we'll probably see a lot more separation coming up. And we'll talk about specific teams here in a minute. But I think just the league is in a really good place right now for this kind of parody, if you will.
1: Yeah, this is definitely the most talented I think the league has ever been. I mean, you, you look at, I mean, as a Thunder fan, I know, I I look up and down our roster and granted, you know, they've had a lot of draft picks. They've had a lot of opportunities to to rebuild recently, but I look up and down their roster and there's guys that are the 12th man that I I want to watch play. And that, you know, five, 10 years ago did not, was That was not the case at all, and not every team has that kind of depth that people actually want to watch, but there, there's so many teams where you look, and like you said with Shea, they have a guy that can give you 30. I mean, We're going to talk about some of the teams that are overachieving later, and I, I'm not going to spoil those, but a lot of those teams have guys that on any given night can be the best player on the court, even if over the course of a season they're not usually going to be that guy. I also think that's why we have the same teams at the bottom as we have in previous years. I think a lot of people were excited about the Pistons. They were excited about the Magic, Um, maybe the Rockets. And those teams are right at the bottom just like they were before. And I think that's because the league is so talented now, you're not just going to add one or two young players and expect to contend immediately. It takes time for these guys to develop and with with rosters as talented as they are sure you know Cade Cunningham is going to help you Paolo Banchero is going to help you Jalen Green is going to help you but the league is talented enough where we can't expect these teams to immediately ascend like the, like they might have you know when the Cavs drafted LeBron in 2003 even if LeBron is a significantly better player than all of those guys so I think it, requ- it, it makes these lower teams have some patience because it really does take time to build your roster up to a level that you can compete at. But like you mentioned, even those teams, they have guys that on any given night can give you 30.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. To kind of close this before we get into specific teams, I think the biggest thing now, like you mentioned LeBron in 03, every team has a star player at this point. That wasn't always the case. And so one star player in the past could elevate a franchise. Well, Whereas now, I I mean, I think you can make a case that probably everyone except the Spurs has someone there like, this is our guy. Um, Even, you know, like the Rockets potentially with Jalen Green, Jabari Smith, Pistons, Kate Cunningham, Charlotte has LaMelo Ball. So, I mean, even the bad teams have guys they want to build around. But with that being said, obviously some teams are just better. And so when I look at the West, there are some teams, I think early on, injuries, injuries, chemistry have kind of kept them from maybe starting out the gates hot plus it's just the regular season at the beginning so looking at the west who are some teams you think are kind of the upper echelon that as we get towards the playoffs are the teams you think can actually win the western conference
1: yeah and i I think in terms of teams that i i like over the course of the season to kind of separate themselves and then be good in the playoffs i really like where denver is at i just think that roster um you know they started off a little slow to start the year but they're on a four game win streak as we're recording this and we knew that when you're getting MPJ back when you're getting um when you're getting Jamal Murray back when you're bringing in other guys like Bruce Brown, Cantavius Caldwell-Pope, you're bringing in Christian Brown the rookie it was going to take some time for these guys to gel and going into the year you know that they might have been, I honestly, I mean, I didn't make title picks, so I can't pretend like I had, had a team, but I, I think they might have been the team I had selected to come out of the West. Um, if I did, I really like the way they play in their roster, and I think Jokic now has the opportunity to take a step back, and his stats might not be as impressive as they were in years past when he was easily winning the MVP, but I think they're a better team because of that, and, and they're playing better team basketball, so that's... a the first team I really like where they're at. And then another team, that I, and then I'll throw it back over to you, I think the Pelicans are for real. This roster just has a ton of talent. They have great depth. Young guys like Trey Murphy, Herb Jones, you've seen Dyson Daniels step up and play a little bit better recently in their last few games. I think they have a ton of young depth that has continued to develop, along with a guy like Zion, who can be the best player in a playoffs here. He's that He's that good of an offensive force. They have a lot of offensive weapons so I I think the Pelicans are for real I I liked them going into the season and they've done nothing to dissuade me from that so far
0: yeah those two teams are both ones that I think I have highlighted as they could win in the Western Conference especially when we get to the playoff time I think the case of a lot of the upper teams and honestly the way the standings are right now even though it's jumbled or the way I kind of lean The Suns, I will say, they're in the lead right now. They were the one seed last year. I'm still nervous about them because I don't think the roster is better than it was last year. And unless Devin Booker takes his play up to another level, which he had 51 in the last game. So if he plays like that, then obviously they're a great team. But they don't have Jay Crowder unless they suddenly bring him back. Cameron Johnson's hurt, and they didn't really add anybody. So they don't really scare me as much in the playoffs. Where the teams below them? They're all still figuring it out, or they haven't been fully healthy, and the, guys are, the stars are not, I think, at the highest ceiling. So, yeah, you look at like the Nuggets. We still haven't seen what Jamal Murray and Jokic and Michael Porter Jr. look like fully healthy, I think, and then cohesive. They're figuring that out. Pelicans are the same thing. They haven't had Ingram McCollum and Zion all year. Then the Grizzlies just got back Jaron Jackson Jr. Those three teams are the ones, I think, that have the talent to really compete to go to the finals. And then you throw in the Clippers, who a lot of people think have the deepest roster one through 10. I think you could argue that because veterans don't necessarily mean best roster, but obviously those, those are the ones I'm looking at as far as ceiling wise. They not only couple stars with depth, whereas a lot of these other teams that have surprised early, like the jazz trailblazers, Timberwolves, although the Timberwolves are another story. I don't necessarily think they have the talent throughout the entire season into the playoffs to compete for a
2: championship.
1: Yeah, and the Cam Johnson injury for Phoenix is just such a killer because he was the guy that was supposed to replace Jay Crowder. He was the guy that was supposed to step into that starting lineup and take over those minutes. So for them to have that plan and honestly not have that deep of a roster behind those guys at this point, that that's a huge loss for them. And then you never know if you're going to get a healthy Chris Paul for three playoff series in a row. So they've got a lot of question marks surrounding them, and I think the Clippers are the same way. Would it surprise me at all if they made the finals if they're fully healthy? Like, no. But what are the odds that they are actually healthy at that point? I mean, Kawhi, like, th- this is getting worse and worse with Kawhi now where, like, I'm not sure if we're ever going to see him at, at his peak anymore. Like, even even in the year where he was amazing and the Raptors won the finals, you could tell as the series against Golden State was going on, he couldn't move the same way. He wasn't able to function at that same level even though he was a great player in that series. And I think... At this point, I don't know if we're ever going to see Pete Kawhi anymore, and I don't think the Clippers can win without that. So maybe he figures it out. Maybe he returns just for that playoff run. He's able to get healthy for that time because, you know, it's only 30 games, you know, 25 games. Maybe he can push through that. But I think it's going to be really difficult, and especially when with the way the West is laid out. There's a chance you're playing a really good team in round one. Like I don't think that this is a type of year where you can coast by – unless unless you get a really high C and you're playing a team out of the play and it's pretty weak. So they're they're gonna have to figure out a way to get themselves in a good position come playoff time, probably without Kawhi.
0: Yeah, and you look at their statistics, like as a team, everyone um in the first eight seeds of the Western Conference is averaging one hundred and fifteen points or more per game, and then they're averaging one hundred and seven. So it's just they don't seem to have the offense that they play really good defense, but you know, you worry about if Kawhi doesn't get back to full strength that they really have a roster that can that can win. There's going to be some other teams we talk about, I think, later, so we won't go through all of them. But the big one that we haven't mentioned is obviously the Golden State Warriors. And I know this has been talked about a lot early on. Obviously, they had offseason drama with Dray- Draymond Green punching Jordan Poole. They've shown signs of life of recent. They're back to 500. But do you think, obviously, coming off a championship with all these young players, it was kind of expected they were going to pick up where they left off, and they just haven't. So is this a troubling sign for the Warriors this season? And do you think they even have enough to really even make noise in the playoffs?
1: Yeah, so this is kind of the thing I, I, I did the deepest dive on, so get ready for some numbers here. But go, I think the story is important from the beginning. Like you said, is people expected this to be a year where they were going to come back maybe even better From their finals team last year and it was really interesting going into the year a lot of the projection systems you know 538s model some other even like private team models that kind of try to project the strength of teams all were much lower on the Warriors than than kind of public consensus was going into the year and and the reason for that was because they looked at all those young guys that were going to get minutes and they said I don't know if any of those guys are good and that's been exactly the problem so far this season for the Warriors the Warriors' starting lineup has the best net rating in the league among lineups that have played at least 80 minutes this season. They have an offensive rating of 129 and a defensive rating of 105. And for those that aren't familiar with those stats, that's, that's elite. As a team, they have they they have the 19th-ranked offense and the 25th-ranked defense. So the depth is killing them in, in this point in the year. The young guys just have not been very effective. The starters by themselves have a plus 23 net rating across 258 minutes. The reserve unit a minus 5.7. The reserve unit is the least efficient in the NBA. The starting is the best starting lineup in the NBA. So it, it really is that simple for them. If they can figure out how to get some help from their from their bench, if they can figure out how to reshuffle the minutes and maybe find some young guys that can contribute, this team immediately jumps back into being a contender because the starting lineup is playing at a high enough level where when you increase these guys minutes in a playoff series, they're still going to be great. But to me, this like, and I know last year, this was kind of a big debate and it seemed like it was settled because they ended up winning the finals. It might be time to cash in some chips. Like I, I don't, this team is still playing great with the, with the veterans, with the guys that are the core of this dynasty. And yet I don't know that this team can can win a playoff series against a great team if every time Steph goes off the floor, you're getting outscored by a ridiculous amount for those 10 minutes. So, I don't know. Wiseman's value seems to be pretty low right now. It, it seems like they love Kaminga, and Moody might actually be the only guy that can contribute right now. So, I don't know who they would prefer to move, but I thought last year that they should have moved somebody, which... You could say, you know, they won the finals, so it didn't matter. But I think it might even be more true this year that it it might be time to cash in some of these young chips, because I think the goal was for these guys to kind of take the load off of these veterans. And the load is actually being placed more on the veterans because of how poorly these young guys are playing.
0: Yeah, I think you did a really good job laying it out there. And I think a lot of it is that they have a lot of players who at their supposed peak, it it sounds really good. But you also have so many players that are inconsistent and have low floors. Like, I mean, you think about Draymond Green at this point in his career. He's not an elite player necessarily at anything, but he's just a good role player and he does Draymond Green things. Clay Thompson, he hasn't gotten back to the Clay Thompson we know. I don't think he ever will. And as soon as he realizes that, and he has recently, he's still a good player, but not great. I think Wiggins is is obviously the second best player on the team at this point. But then you you mentioned the bench, Kaminga, Wiseman, pool They they just don't have guys who night in night out are consistent players who you know what you're going to get from them and I, this might make people angry and I, I'm thinking of one person in speci- uh, specifically that we know Jordan Poole is not a very good NBA player all around he's just not I mean his he scores well and his splash plays are amazing but there are nights where he'll have stat lines that are reminiscent of a of a, a first-year player who's barely getting minutes. And, you know, at times he'll put up 20 a night, the next it's five, and he's a defensive liability. So they just don't have guys, and I'm not picking on him necessarily, but like you said with Kaminga, although he had a great game against Dallas, so maybe he can build off that. But it's it's a lot of inconsistency looking at their team, and I'm not giving up on them yet. But I just don't think they have the lineups that, like you say, the Celtics have. And we'll talk about them in a minute. But the most impressive thing about the Celtics is is that no matter who they bring on the floor right now, everyone knows their role. Everyone knows what to do no matter who's on the floor. And I am confident that they're going to be at their best in the playoffs because they've already had it figured it out. And I don't know if the Warriors are going to figure it out with the roster construction like that as they have it now.
1: Yeah, I mean... I know I kind of threw some numbers earlier but the pool thing is really interesting because you think about their best players well okay or, or maybe their starting lineup you know you have Looney Draymond Steph Clay and Wiggins right all of those guys their net ratings all of them are above 6 right so they're outscoring their opponents when those guys are on the court all of those players when they're on the court they're outscoring their opponent by 6 points per 100 possessions that's pretty good that puts you in like top 5 to 10 range in the league and that's the lowest guy that's Andrew Wiggins at 6.2 after that, the gap between him and the next guy is Jemichael Green at negative 5.3. So there's almost a 10-point gap. And you know where Jordan Poole is on that? He's behind Jemichael Green. He's behind Moses Moody. He's behind Dante DiVincenzo at negative 6.4. He he. And I understand part of that is because he's playing with the bench players, right? So it's not just him. But he is the one guy that you look at in this list of players that's not either, you know, more of a bench guy that's, you know, an old veteran like Jamaica Green or a young guy that you're not really sure what you're going to get from get out of them yet. So, I definitely think that he has to improve and when you look at his defensive rating, you know, it's 112. It's it's a little bit higher than most of these other players on the roster other than kind of the bench warmer unit. So, yeah, I think it's it's extremely important for them, and the last thing I'll say in terms of the numbers is the starting unit's assist percentage is significantly higher when they're on the court. In terms of p- percentage of possessions that end in assists, it's way higher on the starting lineup than it is in the bench unit, and we know that's, that's the style the Warriors love to play is this ball movement style, free-flowing. It's really hard to play that kind of style when you don't have Steph Curry on the court and when you don't have Klay Thompson on the court, so... I don't know if this bench unit can reinvent themselves in terms of like playing a different style when when those starters are not on the court. But it seems like something has to change because the the contrast between these two units is about as big as I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, I think it's a case of we've seen this movie with the Celtics, or at least I'm probably a little more familiar with it than most people but, but you remember a couple of years ago when the Celtics had just made an Eastern Conference Finals, right? And then they got Kyrie Irving back. And it was like, their roster is deeper than anyone in the league. Well, they were terrible that year because nobody, everybody thought they were a superstar and nobody realized what their role was. And so I think a lot of the problem with the Warriors is that when those bench guys come in, they think they're, they're starters in this league. And they don't, it's hard to kind of fill your role when, especially the Warriors system, when you're just not ready for that yet. And that's why I think you look at their bench, like Anthony Lamb, who most people probably don't even know who that is, on a night-to-night basis has been their best bench guy. But it's because he is a bench guy and he understands that and he plays his role. So like you said, they're going to have to figure out, you know, which bench guys can supplement the starters, how they can play together as a team. And I think they'll figure it out more as, as they get along the season. But I don't know, like you said, if this is a team they can win it all, if they don't maybe cash in some of those chips for more guys who who fit the win now model. All right, we spent a lot of time on them. So I do want to go ahead and move to the Eastern Conference. We'll mention some of the other teams, I think, in the West coming up with both overachievers and some MVP conversation. But in the East, it's it's been a little more... I guess you would say clear who the best teams are. Although we do have some ones that have kind of had some of the same injuries and chemistry issues, but my Boston Celtics uh, have looked great to start the season. I mentioned it a little bit and I was thinking about, you know, last season, what really got them going was the defense. They had the best defense in the league near the end. It's the opposite this season. Their offense has been unbelievable. They're averaging 122 points per game. And I know it's only 22 games in, but that's pretty incredible. And 126 is the record, by the way, because I, I thought maybe they were challenging so far for that record. But them and the Bucks look like the dominant forces. That's kind of what we expected after seeing the playoffs last season. So, you know, we'll talk about maybe some of the rest of the hierarchy, but are they the clear favorites in your eyes, even this early, to say those teams should be in the in the Eastern Conference Finals?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think Philly at least deserves mention in that because, we haven't really seen them for an extended period of time healthy now, and I. But I don't know how you can say that you view them on the same level as these other two teams because with the Bucks, right, they've been successful and Middleton's been out, right? So they they have also faced injuries, and then with the Celtics, it's just been absolute domination. And you mentioned the scoring, yeah, the offense is. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, they. They like you. You mentioned the record for points per game. Right now, they do have the record for offensive rating. So when you adjust for pace, like they have been the most efficient offense in NBA history so far. Their the the their true shooting percentage is at sixty three point four percent. That's astronomical. That's like James Harden. You know that's that's like his efficiency levels with all the threes and free throws. And when you look at the gap, I mean it's basically the gap between in true shooting percentage, the gap between them and second place, which is the Kings, is the gap between second place and a league average offense. Like that's what we're looking at in terms of um, efficiency with jump shooting, getting to the line. And the most important thing for them is they're just winning the math game. I mean they're their second and three point attempts or sorry, their second and three point percentage and their first and three-point attempts. If you're going to take that many shots and you're going to make them on a consistent basis, there's nothing anybody's going to be able to do. And, you know, Tatum and Brown, you know, we think that those guys have definitely developed as playmakers, but they've also added a guy like Malcolm Brogdon who can can set up shots for others. You know, that's that's what he's great at. So, this roster is complete. I I couldn't believe that their over/under was only like 52 or 53 games going into the year just with how good they were to finish the year last year. And it seemed like other than Ime Adoka leaving, nothing else really changed. So I I think this team is definitely going to finish with the best record in the NBA. We saw last year they weren't perfect in the playoffs. They had struggles. You know, Jalen Brown struggled with his ball handling in the playoffs. They weren't the most efficient team. But they're doing everything that they possibly could right now to to say that they're the best team in the NBA. So Do I know they're going to be great in the playoffs? No, but they're doing everything they possibly could right now to show that.
0: Yeah, 22 games in, you can't necessarily make all predictions that we have so far as like, this is what it's going to be like, but everything has gone up a level, right? We'll we'll talk about MVP frontrunners here in a minute, but Tatum has gone to a completely different level. Like he looks like a completely different player from what we saw in the finals. And I've watched the the last couple of their games. It's like an all-star shooting game. They don't miss like they, they make 50% of their threes and they take 50 a game. So it's been insane. They've scored over 120 points, nine out of the last 12 games and the games they haven't, they've scored one seventeen in and two of them. And the other one was their loss against the bulls. So it's just been insane. Obviously I don't think they're going to sustain that level for the entire season, but I don't see why they can't at least get close to that. And then they're missing their biggest defensive piece in Robert Williams. So you would hope the defense will only improve when he comes back. It'll be interesting to see how what the offense does with him in there, but this is a team like you said that should be the the one seed I think in the East, even with Middleton coming back. And I really do think we're set up for a Bucks Celtics showdown. Like you said, the Sixers they're they're twelve and ten, and for what the roster has looked like, I think that's pretty impressive. But the Bucks are in the same boat as the Celtics. They have a clear hierarchy of Middleton and Giannis are so the best players. They have a really good third guy in Drew Holiday, and the rest of the roster complements them very well. So. I think the East is a lot more simple. Now, we do have some very interesting teams that I think you know could present some problems maybe in a couple years, but right now, those are the two teams to worry about. I will say before we kind of move on to the MVP conversation, some of these teams that, like you mentioned, the Sixers, the Nets, the Cavaliers, um, that have a lot of star talent, do you think they have any chance at all to kind of get on a run here and make a, a push for, for the Bucks or the Celtics? Who did you say? Sorry, I cut out for a second. Uh the Sixers, the Nets, the ones with the stars, and then the I guess you could throw the Cavs in there too with Garland and Mitchell.
1: Yeah. The Cavs, I, I like what the Cavs have done. I still I need to see it a little more. I just they're they're still so young. Like I, I think they will be great, but I just don't know if I can, you know. In good faith, pick a team that young with Garland, Mobley, and Mitchell to beat some of these more experienced teams when I think the talent at their peaks is probably pretty similar. The Nets are really interesting because, you know, they're still trying to get back fully healthy. It's. Durant is still playing at a, at a phenomenal level, but the whole Kyrie off the court stuff I think has distracted us a little bit from the fact that he's also just not been as good of a basketball player on the court in the past Um, in in his recent games. And it's not to say he's washed or anything, but that is concerning, especially when, you know, when you trade away Harden for Ben Simmons, what you're saying is, okay, well now Kyrie's responsibility is the playmaking responsibility. We're putting that back on him. We're going to let Ben Simmons do some of this more defensive, you know, rebounding, that kind of thing. So I think that's something to watch with the Nets is like, Can Kyrie be the number two that he has been for all of his career, you know, playing with LeBron, playing with, you know, playing with KD now? Because I think, I don't know that I'm willing to take that for granted at this point. And yeah, with the Sixers, like, I'm still very open-minded that they could win the East, but I, you know, Harden's going to have to demonstrate that he is, it can actually get to the rim like he used to be able to, for me to be convinced of that, because Embiid's amazing. Maxi has developed into a fantastic young player, but the the hardened kind of cheat code offense, I think, is what really unlocks them to be a finals contender. And we just have no idea if if that's going to happen at this point. And one last thing I wanted to add um with the Celtics, too, before we moved on from them, because I think I think it's so important to the question of can these other teams contend with the Celtics? In the East is Last year in the finals, I'm sure you remember all the talk about the Celtics turnovers. Like that was such a big issue. They couldn't really hold on to the ball. The play just felt very sloppy. Um, Their their turnover rate in the finals was worse than the league worst Rockets in the regular season last year. So, I mean, we're talking about not just a bad turnover rate, like a, a ridiculously bad turnover rate for a great team. They're first in assisted turnover rate this year. Like, out of, out of the entire league, they're first. They're right above the Suns, who, you know, they take care of the, Chris Paul refuses to t- turn the ball over ever, and they're ahead of the Suns. So, to me, it, it's going to be really hard to catch the Celtics, unless you have a guy like Giannis with a great team. That's probably, you know, with the Bucs, you you know, Giannis can beat anybody. But it's going to be really hard to creep up to this level that the Celtics are playing at right now. Because even the stuff last year that they struggled with, they fixed that, at least to this point. So, who knows if that'll continue in the playoffs, but, like, I think that's why I'm so skeptical that a lot of these teams can is because the the Celtics are really playing at at that high of a level right now.
0: Yeah. I don't want to just sit here and ghost about the Celtics all day, but I will because it's like all the holes they had from last season, they've seemed to fix. I think Brogdon's a big part of that because they finally have a guy who they can give the ball to and they can say, okay, you run the offense and we don't have to worry about, you know, who's going to bring the ball off the floor at this time. Tatum, I think is a big part of that going to another level and then watching the games this season, Jalen Brown has finally figured out, maybe I shouldn't be dribbling the basketball so much. Every yeah. time I watched him last in the finals, it was he was dribbling too much in the in-between where there were a lot of bodies. Now when I see him, it's either passing or he is going to the rim. All that in-between dribble stuff is out. And it, it may come back as we get closer to the playoffs. And he d- takes on more responsibility, but this is very much, they understand who, the guys who should be dribbling, and if not, it's a lot of ball movement, a lot of passing, and it's a lot of not wasted dribbling, which I think is a lot of, so many of the problems in the NBA with with teams is wasted dribbling, and we just don't see that from the Celtics as much now, because Brogdon and Tatum are the main guys who they know can put it on the floor, and they let them do it, so I, like you said, obviously it's 22 games, it's been a perfect you know, starts to the season, most mostly for the Celtics. So we'll have to see when they when they kind of get to the end and deal with some injuries maybe, but couldn't be happier with what they've shown so far. And I really do think the Bucks, when they get Middleton back, will have a claim to be up there as well. But, you know, it's just going to be really interesting to see. All right, we're going to talk about some of the other teams as well when we get to the discussion. We're going to take a quick break because now we're going to move into talking about some individual players with MVP front runners and then some teams specifically that have disappointed and impressed us and why that is. So we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with that. All right, we're going to move into some individual player discussion, kind of move away from the team stuff and talk about MVP in the NBA so far. Obviously, we've said it several times, only a quarter of the way through, so there's a lot of season left to be played. But I think this season especially, there are a lot of guys who are making a case early on uh, and we're seeing scoring I think like we've never had before so I'll start with you Sully I mean you, I'm sure you got several guys that you want to talk about but give me give me one of the ones that's impressed you the most at the beginning of the year
1: yeah I think and I, I won't give them all away I, and we'll see what how you feel about the the way these guys stack up I, I think there's four guys that have kind of separated themselves from the rest of the league at least to this point and the guy and th- this was difficult. I will say, like I-, I think that these a lot of these guys are close. The guy I had at the top was Luca. I think he's being asked to do the most now. This goes back to the question of how you value MVP. I I tend to be somebody that values a guy taking on a load that I don't think other players could handle, and still making his team competitive, making his team a good team, but. Right now, Dallas's record is not that good. So i it, it's just so hard for me to look at a guy who's shooting 50% from the field. He's averaging 33-9-8 and eight and not vote him for MVP. But I do think it comes down to your process because at the same time, I think the case for Tatum is super easy to make. And with how good his numbers are at the same time, I would have no problem with putting him one. It, it seems like those are the guys that would be at the top of the list, but there are some other guys I think that are worthy of discussion as well.
0: Yeah. I think Luca Luca is the easy pick because he's putting up the Russell Westbrook like numbers that we kind of expect now out of an MVP. You know, Jokic has done that now Giannis, but if you watch the games, I, I do think the pick for me right now is Tatum because he doesn't, I mean, let's be honest. Doncic has the ball in his hands all the time. It's not a very fun thing to watch. Now, he's fun to watch, but the team is not because it's just watching him dribble and do his thing. Tatum doesn't have the ball near as much in his hands. And you said a good thing about, well, what it, what do they do to the game? Do they dominate the game? Do they make their team good? You watch Tatum on the Celtics right now, and it's he is he's so important to what they do, and he takes over games. I mean, it's just he is obviously the best player on the floor most nights um and i think like i said he's leveled up a lot and that's credit to him one thing in the finals that was terrible was he could not finish to save his life this year the finishing has been the best i've ever seen it and obviously he can't do what luca does and carry a team i think maybe in the one-on-one way that he does but you know the stats wise he's averaging 31.5 eight boards four and a half assists so i mean it's he, he's not up to the luca triple double numbers but it they're really good so i would have tatum but like you said you can't go wrong with luca either my question with Luca is how sustainable is that with how much he's used? Because you know that I don't think the record is there for them this year. I don't see them winning more than 50-ish games. So it along with that and his usage, I'm concerned that I don't know if that can be sustained the entire season. But like you said, he is definitely going to be there at the end. A couple of other guys that I'll mention, then I'll bounce it back to you and we can kind of discuss maybe some of the other ones is... You know, obviously Giannis is there. He's going to get Middleton back, so you wonder how that's going to affect him. Jokic is there too, but I think with both of them, if Luka and Tatum keep having the seasons that they are, then the the MVP fatigue will kind of set in. The one that I'm I'm interested about, I know you are as well, is I don't think he's going to win. He he won't. But like how how good has Shea been for the Thunder every night, and how consistent he has been setting them up now for he could be the franchise cornerstone going forward
1: yeah I so I'll I'll go ahead and give you my list and kind of where I I would have him I I had so I I think to me like the clear top four is like Luka Tatum Steph and Giannis I think those guys to me are in a group of their own Jokic I think belongs like you mentioned right next to them after Jokic, I think there's a case for Shea. I'm not sure there's anybody else that I would say for sure needs to be over him. He's averaging 31 a game. He's got five rebounds, six assists. The most important thing with him, and this is something I was going to come back to with Tatum as well, so I'll hit him at the same time. First, if you look at Tatum's free throw attempts in his career, his starting from his rookie year, 3.2, 2.9, last year he had 6.2, this year it's 8.6. He's also shooting a career high in terms of free throw percentage. If you look at Shea, it's the exact same thing. His rookie year, he goes 2.4. The next year, there's a huge jump, 5.1, then he goes 6.5, last year 7.2, and this year he's at 9.3 free throw attempts a game on 92% from the line. That's how you score 30 points a game in this league. When you're getting a free 9 points or 8 points from the line every game, that's how you score that many points, especially for a Thunder team where all of the attention is on him. Last year, he led the league in drives. He, he did at least per game you know, when he was healthy. But it's really difficult when you don't have a, great, a ton of talent around you to still convert those into points because defenses last year were more than willing to concede open 3-pointers to bad shooters in order to get the ball out of Shea's hands. This year, they're probably still willing to concede those, but it doesn't really matter because Shea is talented enough, he's crafty enough, he's weird enough around the rim where he can get his shot off whenever he wants to, and oftentimes he's drawing contact doing that as well. And the drives have just skyrocketed. I mean, he's he's his two-point attempts this year are about five higher than any other season, and his three-point attempts have gone down over two per game. So he's basically just decided, like, I'm going to barrel myself at the rim and I think I'm crafty. I think I'm skillful enough that I really don't have to do anything else. It's kind of funny that he like, he's almost playing more like a Giannis offensively than he is like a a, a guard. Like he, his, his whole goal is just to get in the paint. And from then he's got you exactly where he wants you.
0: Yeah. One big thing they talk about with Shay is like his, his ability to, to cut, to make tough angles, not matter. And he gets the angle on you and, He has, it's a combination of his length and just his natural athleticism, but he gets to the rim in a way we don't see many guards do. And it's not with pure athleticism. It's just with very controlled body movement and and a lot of skill. And, you know, he is very long. So he has a game, I think, too, that's so unique because it's not your typical, like, get it, you know he's not this big Giannis guy who's going to dunk all over you and just kill you with size he's not a shooter necessarily although he has improved that part of his game it's very unique but he is so skilled and you know he gets to his spots every time and I do think the Thunder have now gotten to a point where they would be foolish not to build around him if they weren't already so that's the interesting part for me is he's not going to win MVP but he has proven that he is a top 15 top 10 player in the league I really do think this season and and he's only going to get, you would think, a little better as he gets older. I, you mentioned a guy earlier on, and, and I do want to mention him, and that's Steph Curry. He, he obviously added another finals to his collection last year. So we, we know his greatness. But I think we've gotten to a point with him where we just kind of, kind of like with Brian, where we stop appreciating how good he is. You look at his numbers this season. We went bonkers over that 2015-2016 uh, season when he hit up 400 threes. Thirty points a game. You know the Warriors were seventy-three and nine. He is on track for that same statistical season this year. Almost four hundred threes, thirty-one points a game, more assists, more rebounds. But because of the way the team is, and plus how we view Steph now, it's like it's common. It's it's commonplace. And I think that's that's what's so when you you know you've made it to like a LeBron like level is where you stop even. Thinking about that as being great anymore and you just expect it and with him every night it's it's 30 points and the shooting is outrageous so I, I do think we need to mention him as well he won't be the sexy pick but he his season is statistically up there with any of those guys that you want to throw in
1: yeah and I think I mean you know I already made the case for Luca you know at one I mean, the exact same case applies to Steph this year, and I, I think maybe even more so because of the reasons that we talked about with how effective the Warriors are when he's on the court, and then how bad it is when they're off the court. Like he's so essential to the success that they're having right now. Not to mention, this might be the best statistical season of his career. Like you mentioned, thirty-one points a game, seven assists, seven rebounds. He's over. He's he's fifty forty ninety for only the second time in his career. Like these are. This is an all-time Steph season and if the Warriors bench was just somewhat competent, I think we'd be treating it as that. But yeah, I, I think Steph is very much in this MVP race. And if if I think he and Luca are kinda in the same position where if the Celtics say, stay this good and Tatum is this good, They're going to, their teams are going to have to improve because if the gap is this big between record, if the Celtics are by far the best team in the league and these two teams stay closer to 500, these guys just aren't going to have a chance in the race, even if I think they're probably playing about as well.
0: Yeah, to kind of wrap up this conversation, I mean, Luka and Curry, you know what they're going to get every night just because the offense revolves around them. So that is their, I guess, superpower. But like you said, the team has to get a little bit better. I will say the thing with Tatum is that he really hasn't shot the ball well. He he just finally shot from three well against the Heat, and he scored 49. So if he continues to shoot well, I really don't see him slowing down either. But like you said, I think that's the three-headed monster because if they don't slow down, I don't see the voters giving it to a Giannis or a Jokic again. It's just too much fatigue, and unfortunately, that's been the, the theme. You know, If you see a guy winning it over and over again, it, you, you tend not to give it to him. Yeah, All right, we're gonna and, move. And one oh, of
1: these guys yeah. will get hurt. One of these guys' teams will slow down. Like this, this always narrows itself down over the course of the season. So, I, I, I do think these are the five guys that are, you know, kind of have separated themselves so far. And I would be pretty surprised if it didn't go to one of these five guys. But there, there will be some natural selection over the course of the season. And. A lot of it, as much as I don't like that it's like this, a lot of it's going to come down to team success. And to some extent, I, that's pretty fair, right? If Tatum and Luka have the same production, Tatum definitely deserves to win the award. So if, if the Celtics continue this, which I think they've got a pretty good chance to, I, th- I think this is Tatum's award to lose.
0: Yeah, and, and that's a good point is that perception matters because you mentioned Durant and how great he's been. He's having 30 points a game. But because of our expectations for the Nets, And how turbulent their off-the-court stuff has been, he has no chance because we already view that whole situation as a disappointment. So perception really does matter. And as we get into now teams that have impressed us and disappointed us, there is a lot of that, of things haven't gone as expected or things have worked out better. Uh, so we'll, we'll start with you uh, as we move into this kind of final segment, as we've talked about a lot of players, a lot of teams, and now I think we're going to kind of get into some of the ones that we maybe didn't mention in the necessarily hierarchy of the, of the top teams in the West and the East. Give me your team that we'll, we'll start with the negative. Give me a team that's disappointed you so far this season.
1: Yeah, I was going to say I want to start with my negative because if you, if you want to do your impressive one first, I'm going to kind of bounce off you for that because I think there's a trend there with these teams. So, yeah, my disappointing team, it's the Timberwolves. I'm glad that we didn't do a preseason podcast because I would have sounded really stupid right now with how the Timberwolves are performing. It, granted, it's early. You know, If any team was going to need some time to gel and have the potential to improve over the course of the season – the Timberwolves probably are that team just because of how much a shift in in terms of style of play, in terms of personnel that the Rudy Gobert acquisition has caused, but it, it's just really difficult for them right now to run any type of offense that feels smooth, that feels like it actually is functioning the way that they intend it to function. I think Gobert, I think Towns will start to improve with that, but Towns is going to have to be the guy that changes how he plays offensively because Gobert is so limited on, on offense, like that he does about two things and that screen and roll to the rim, right? So Towns is going to have to be comfortable playing more on the outside. But the biggest thing for me with this team, and, and the I think the thing that I missed the most about them going into the year, was that when you think about how Rudy Gobert was effective in Utah – it was a ton of screens and diving to the rim, crashing, and then kicking out to open three-point shooters. Well, the Wolves don't have very good three-point shooting, and they don't have great ball handlers either. D'Angelo Russell is not a guy that I want with the ball in his hands a ton. And Anthony Edwards is not at the point yet where, where I really want him handling the ball a lot either. I mean, he's got he's got he's averaging four assists a game and three turnovers a game. So the, the assist turnover with him is is pretty bad. And with that I think that's why Kyle Anderson is the only guy on this team with a, a plus-minus per 100 possessions of over one. Because Kyle Anderson's a guy that can move the ball around, can shoot the three. I think Anderson needs to play more. He's only playing 22 minutes a game. You know, guys like Nas Reed, Tarian Prince, maybe you take some minutes away from them and give it to him. Because I think this team is in desperate need of guys that can just move the ball and create something while being able to shoot at the same time. Right now, it's a lot of athleticism. It's a lot of guys that like being in the paint. And so they're going to have to make adjustments there. I'm a little more optimistic about the defense because every year that Gobert has been on a basketball team, that he's been a a decently good player. He's been a, a part of one of the best defenses in the league. Now, Maybe that changes because of the the awkward way that they're having to play, but they are 13th in defensive rating right now, so they're at a decent position. I'm a little more optimistic about that, but the offense has to improve for this team to to even succeed in the regular season. I already had playoff concerns about this team, but I thought the regular season would be where they could get by, kind of like the Jazz did. But this this is pretty bad, especially offensively. They're going to have a lot of improving to do before playoff time.
0: Yeah, I was on. I was on the side of. I thought the Gobert trade was a bad one, just because I didn't see how the pieces fit together. I, I and I still don't. I I just I understand that he makes your team good on defense. I understand he provides some things that other players can't. But when you look at guys like Edwards and Towns, who are very inconsistent in their own right, you don't add to me a guy who can't play offense in the playoffs, really. He, at times, is a defensive liability because of the matchup. So I I think this team just doesn't fit well with him. And they have been really disappointing. But at the same time, I think you could also see it coming. So I'm interested to see. You know, they're 11-11, so it's not a failed season or yet or anything. They gave Kyle Anderson 39 minutes against the Grizzlies. So I think you're right. They're starting to figure out, hey, maybe he's a guy we need to have on the floor with, with Russell and with uh, Towns and Edwards. But they just have a lot of guys like like the Russell, like the Edwards, like the Towns who are kind of that prima donna type and you don't really know what you're getting from them night to night, a lot, a lot like we talked about with the Warriors. So that's just a tough situation for Gobert to come into. And like you say, it's going to be interesting to see if they're able to figure some of that stuff out because they did have a lot to work on and gel together with. So I guess, yeah, like you said, I'll give my impressive team because maybe they kind of goes hand in hand in that Western Conference And that's the Sacramento Kings. And I I don't necessarily think this is is like, oh, wow, they're so impressive. Like they can make a run at the Western Conference Finals this season or anything like that. But this is more of like the Kings have been bad for a long time. We know their playoff history. They haven't been in over 20-something years now, I think, or around that. And they finally look like they have a competent roster on the floor who knows who they are. And that's my biggest thing is... The past several years, they had Tyrese Halliburton, Davion Mitchell, Fox, and it was like, well, what what do those pieces do? And then they traded Halliburton to the the Pacers, and it was like, man, they, they can't get it right. And I still don't know if they should have traded Halliburton to the Pacers, but at least now that freed up them to have a roster that makes sense with Fox, Sabonis, Harrison Barnes, and Murray are kind of those athletic wings. Kevin Herter is the guy who knocks down threes. Malik Monk is that off the bench. So I'm just finally excited to see Sacramento have a team that's fun to watch. Plus they actually can win some games. And I do think this will be a playoff team. It worst case scenario, a bubble team. And maybe you disagree with me there, but I think this, this team is actually one that makes sense on the floor and one that I think will only kind of get better and better as the season goes along.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think the, the under the radar acquisition that has been huge for them is herder. I mean, they they did not give up a ton for him, right? Just a first. I mean, he's he's averaging like seventeen points a game. He's shooting, I think, over fifty percent from three, and the three point shooting is really what I want to talk about here. And I kind of I already mentioned this with the Celtics in terms of their attempts and their makes. The the Kings, and then my impressive team. I'll go ahead and spoil is the Jazz. Okay, another team that I think could qualify for this discussion is the Pacers. Um, when you look at three-point attempts this year, the top seven teams, it's the Celtics, it's the Warriors, the Mavericks, the Pacers, the Jazz, the Bucks, and the Kings. So if you look at the three kind of middle surprise teams so far, I think from this year, most a lot of people, their three would be the Pacers, the Jazz, and the Kings. And they're all in top seven, the top seven of three-point attempts. And they're all also shooting the ball pretty well. The Pacers are about 36%, the Jazz 37%, the Kings, is like right in between there, 36 and a half. These teams are getting good looks from three and they're hitting them. And we know this is the way that the league is shifting to more and more. But I think, especially for these middle teams, these teams that don't have as, as much talent as some of the top teams in the league. This is their equalizer. The three point shot is the way for them to stay in games. And I think that's another reason. I didn't want to spoil it when we were talking earlier. The three point shot is one of the, if not the main reason, for all of this parity that we're seeing from some of these teams that we didn't expect to be as good. And I know that, like, you know, the three pointer is kind of like this, you know, nebulous tie. Is it good? Is it bad? I think there's, there's, things on both sides of it for the, in terms of the league. like the, the, the play has definitely gotten more monotonous, but also it creates higher variance, especially for these teams that may not be as talented as, as the team they're going up against every night. So the, the three-point shot for, for the Kings, for the Jazz, and, and also the Pacers is something that they've really used to propel themselves to, to a greater start than people expected.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point about the three point thing, because that is, I think, what the the lesser teams have realized, that if we just get guys out on the floor who can space and shoot, we're going to have a chance to win a lot of games. And it took some teams a lot of time to realize that. And that's finally, like you said, the direction, the Kings, the Pacers, and the Jazz are moving in. So a really good point there. And, and I do think that you know we'll see some regression from maybe teams like the Pacers a little bit we already have seen it from the Jazz so the Kings have a chance at regressing but i do think they finally got it right with the roster construction and that's what matters in having a team that fits together so you're about to talk about a team that's impressed you and i think from that standpoint as well they kind of don't have a lot of talent but the roster construction is pr- is pretty s- a lot more sound than people thought
1: yeah yeah absolutely and i think when you when you look at even you know some of these more like net rating is sometimes a little more useful to look at at the beginning of the of the year than overall record. The Kings are 6th in net rating. The the Jazz who are, you know, the team that I was I'm talking about, they're 10th. So they they both actually have had like legitimately good starts. This is not just them getting lucky and winning games. Now the Pacers are 16th. They're a little closer to the middle of the pack there. But with the Jazz specifically I think this was a team that most of us going into the year just thought, okay, well, either they're going to be terrible, which I think is really what most people expected, including me, was they're just not going to be good, or they're going to be decent, and then Ainge is going to just trade all the players away as soon as they're decent. But so far, that hasn't happened, and I'm not willing to say it's not going to happen, because I do think Ainge still wants to take this team in the direction of a rebuild, but this team is extremely well coached, and they've had guys blossom, especially Lowry Markinon, who's averaging twenty-two points a game. He's shooting almost forty percent from three, eight and a half rebounds, two assists a game. He's turned himself more into this perimeter, like wing, than I expected. I don't know. i I don't know about you. I had always looked at him as more of like a stretch five, like a guy that wasn't really athletic enough to play on the perimeter he seems so much more like shifty, agile on the perimeter. He really, it looks like he really can like get his own shot now. And so he, to me has been like the biggest standout for them in terms of like a legit, like great player. And I know like at the beginning of the year, I don't know if you listened to this Rocillo podcast, like on their segment, worst take, like the Larry market most improved was one of their like takes. that They talked about as like, this is a terrible take. Like there's no way this happens. And so far, like it actually has. So, it surprised a ton of people and I I just did not ever think that he could be this type of player for, for a team like the Jazz
0: yeah it's funny you bring that up because me and my brother listened to that episode together and we agreed with the take that Lowry Markin at this point in his career is not somebody you look at breaking out but yet he has like it, it's insane so I mean yeah it, it, it's interesting because I never he still doesn't look like a guy that dribbles or can get his own shot, but he has, and the three-point shooting is there, and and he's kind of almost like if Kristaps Porzingis, you know, was a little bit more guard-oriented, or, you know, they're they're very similar now in what they do. Porzingis is just a better shot blocker and defender, so not the same player, but offensively, I do think, you know, that's a good comparison to what he's turned into, so, I mean, yeah, I've been really impressed with him as well, I think the biggest thing, like you mentioned, you kind of mentioned there is like Will Hardy. What what a get that was for the Jazz. And, and the Celtics too, once again, you know, they don't even have Ime Adoka and Joe Mazula stepped into that position well. I think they probably would have elevated Will Hardy to that role if, he, so. if they wouldn't have stepped, if the Jazz wouldn't have taken him. So I, that's, that's been a huge get for them. And it's going to be interesting. Like you said, they, they've they lost now several in a row. They just beat the Clippers actually to kind of get off the losing streak, but if the season kind of goes along at like a 500 pace, if Ainge pulls the plug, because I do think it would be foolish not to try to get Wim Benyama. So I I, I do see it going that direction, even though they've had such an impressive start to the year.
1: Yeah. And, and the last thing I'll add with them is I think you mentioned pulling the plug. If there's one guy I think that makes other than marketing, because he's obviously been the best player. If there's one guy I think would make the most impact to trade away I think it might be Kelly Olynyk because if you look at their other bigs, like it's a lot of guys that can maybe play like the small ball role, maybe like Larry Marketin, or Van- Jared Vanderbilt. But Walker Kessler is the backup center, and Kessler is so different from Olynyk in the way that you have to play offensively with him. Like Kessler is not really a guy that I I think they're expecting to space the floor at this point. It looks like in his 21 games, he has yeah he has not attempted a three point shot. In his 21 games so far, Olenick, on the other hand, is attempting three and a half a game and he's making them at 48%, right? So, part of their spacing offense is the fact that he can provide that from the big man role. I don't think this offense is nearly as efficient without him. And so, if they're looking to make a move, they have a lot of these guards that can score, you know, like Clarkson, Sexton, Conley, Beasley, Horton Tucker. I don't think moving one of those guys makes like that big of a difference. But Olinic to me is like the the piece in that puzzle that does there's not really a replacement for on this roster unless you think Rudy Gay is gonna be that guy, which I I really don't think that's possible at this
0: point. Yeah, it's a really interesting, you know, take on, you know, how to get worse, if you will, for the jazz. And and they do have a lot of pieces that are just good players but they know how to play together as a team and that's why it's worked well so far so it'll be interesting to see what what Ainge does with the roster moving forward all right to close out our nba segment i'm going to give my disappointing team and that to me has been the miami heat and for me a lot of the teams that have issues like the nets like the sixers i can see a path for them talent wise and roster wise to potentially be a good team and we've already seen, I think, improvement recently with the Nets and the um, the Sixers. The Heat, on the other hand, you know, they made the Eastern Conference Finals last year. So we, I think we kind of expected them to still be a, a pretty good team. I just don't see it from them. I, I don't see a way to get anywhere close to the Eastern Conference Finals. and. The roster, when you look at it, it, I don't know if it's everybody else got better or everybody else. I I just don't think this is a very good roster. I mean, you're relying on Kyle Lowry and, you know, Tyler Hero, Max Strews to be your main players and, and Bam and Jimmy are questionable at how elite they are. Both great players, but I don't think they're, you know, competing with the Giannis's and the Tatum's of the world. So for me, it's not even as much as what has happened so far and they're 10 and 12, so that's not good. But it's just that I don't see where where they can go that makes me think, oh, this is going to be a team competing again for an Eastern Conference final spot.
1: Yeah, I I just don't think you can have the 23rd best offense in the NBA and expect to actually uh, like contend. I mean, if you look at the teams below them right now in terms of offense, it's the Magic, the Pistons, the Lakers, the Rockets, the Clippers, the Spurs, and the Hornets. I mean... The Lakers are just awful, and then the Clippers have been banged up, and somehow they're still above five hundred because Ty Lue is such a good coach and they're playing such good defense. The rest of those teams are in full rebuild mode. So the offense just has to improve. I mean, I don't know if you need to ask more out of Bam. Like, I I don't know if he can handle anything more, but it seems like Heat fans for a while have been hoping that he could take a, a bigger role offensively and thrive in that. It seems like if it hasn't happened... Up to this point, it's probably not going to. But especially when you have the twenty third best offense, you have to have a top ten defense, and they don't right now. They're outside the top ten. They're an old team, at least in terms of you know Kyle Lowry, Jimmy Butler. I, I feel like they really are probably looking back and regretting that Kyle Lowry uh, acquisition. I mean, they they paid a lot of money to to acquire him, and he he has been. I think Lowry before was kind of already like this amazing like glorified role player like he wasn't really a guy you ran your team through but he did so many good things for you now he's just a role player like that's just that's just what he is at this point and, and you're not paying him like that at all so yeah I, I think the Heat are in a really tough spot because honestly if you're if you're looking at a defense first team with a lot of with a lot of talent that might have a chance to make a run I think I would take Toronto before them I mean at least they're young at least they have guys like Pascal Siakam, O.G. Ananobi, Scottie Barnes, that they give me the length and the athleticism, and maybe the offense improves throughout the year, even though they've struggled um, a little bit on that end to start the season. So, yeah, I, I especially with, with the teams we discussed at the top of the East, like the Heat have a really long way to go, especially when I, I wasn't super excited about their ceiling even before this, this rough start to the season.
0: Yeah, I think the Raptors are a good comp there because they are similar in the makeup, but the Raptors are just a lot younger, and a, you can see the the ceiling a lot higher. I feel like for them than than a Miami Heat team. So, yeah, it's 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 sad because I I as much as I want the Celtics to win, and you know I do appreciate the the way the Heat have played and, and things like that. But this is just to me a, a poorly constructed team, like you said, the Kawhi Lowry, Lowry trade now. It doesn't, it, what were they thinking almost, type of thing, because you, you just can't expect him to be the guy that's leading your team to, to wins in the playoffs. So, yeah, I don't really see where they go from here. All right, that's, I think, going to be the end of our NBA segment. We covered a lot of ground. We didn't even mention the Lakers, but I feel like that's because until they prove us otherwise, they don't really need to be mentioned. Yeah, there's
1: nothing to be said. Trade Russ, that's it. Yeah,
0: I mean, they have played better of late. Anthony Davis has played better of late. But, yeah, I still think we need to see a lot more of them before we consider them uh, even as a potential threat in the West. But we appreciate Sully coming on. We'll definitely keep evaluating the NBA as it moves along, and especially when football and things start Uh, start winding down so appreciate you coming on today so we're going to have one final segment to close uh and then that'll be our episode all right to conclude today's episode i got my brother drew miller on once again Like I said, we're doing another draft. We're doing a starting five of Disney characters. And this isn't our favorite Disney characters or the ones that are most popular. This is if we were building a basketball team from scratch and someone asked us who the best five Disney characters were to pick. These are our choices and we're going to give some logic behind that. So it'll go back and forth like a normal draft. I gave Drew the first pick last time. So I'll get the first pick today and to start us off i'm going i'm going with my lebron james the best player in the league hands down drew says he disagrees with me i think because he seems to have another player but maybe it's the same guy i gotta go genie genie to me best talent in the league for sure you know he's finally freed from the shackles just like lebron leaving cleveland and now he, it's his league. You know, it's his league. No one's holding him back. And that's the guy I'm going to build my team around for 10 plus years. He's really a franchise cornerstone. And I think they're, you know, hands down best player uh, in the Disney universe.
2: Yeah, so the Genie was actually uh, my number two guy. So my number one guy is still on the board.
0: All right, so well, let's your who number I, who one. Taking,
2: yeah, who I'm taking number one is Hercules. Bro, my man, an absolute beast, a physical specimen. I'm sure. I mean, he's he's an athlete. He's probably gonna be dunking all over your team, dunking all over anybody's team. I bet he can shoot too. That's what I'm saying. He's gotta go he's gotta go number one overall.
0: I mean, I think those are two pretty good number one options here. And that's what you want with your number one pick. That's what they're looking for in the NBA draft, somebody to to lead the franchise. And I think we both got that in. All right, I'm going to start going to my role players here. And I, I really think the scouting, I talked with my scouts, we, we evaluated, and th- these next four picks for me off the charts. So I've got my number one all-star. I've got my LeBron. I need a point guard, right? Carmelo needed a John Stockton. The Lakers' Kareem Abdul-Jabbar needed a Magic Johnson. And I need my point guard. And so I'm going to take Remy from Ratatouille, right? You talk about an elite string puller. You talk about a guy who can get people in the places they need to be. That's literally what the movie Ratatouille is, ba- is about, right? He makes the person, everyone around him, better. And we know in the movie he single-handedly takes a guy who can't cook to one of the top chefs in the world. And that's what I'm hoping here. No, he's not going to score 40 points a night, but I don't need him to. I just need him to to lead the offense, be the floor general, and get everybody in the right spots. And then the product out on the floor will be elite. So going. Really point guard focused second, but Remy is a is an absolute master coach on the floor, and he's gonna get everybody in the right spots.
2: Yeah, yeah, great pick. I really like the the pulling the strings reference. That was good. <laughs> Thank
0: you. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah. All right. I'm taking who I'm taking number two. I'm taking the beast from Beauty and the Beast. So I'm starting off with, you know, big physical, strong players here at the beginning. Uh once again, the beast tack the paint, lock him down defensively. He's got to go number two.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, you're really building, I don't know that this team so far is, do they get tired? That's, that's the question, right? The, the stamina is big guys and they don't play in this league anymore. I think you know that the center, we're getting away from the center position. Can they shoot the three? I just, I just don't know, but those are two very athletic picks. And that leads really well into my third pick. And this, I think is the the projection, right? This guy is a, Guy that we don't know if he can stay healthy, we don't know if he can put it all together. But if he does, he's up there with Genie, and that that is Tigger from Winnie the Pooh, right? I know you're gonna talk about the medicals. I've seen them. You know the injury, the injury concern is there, but the athletic ability, the jumping ability is off the chart. And if we get him in the right system. And if he works on his game, then he has the talent, great attitude. And he, he, you know, did great in the interviews. So I think Tigger is my kind of wild card where if he puts it all together, the athleticism is there uh, and will be a great compliment to Genie as my number one.
2: Yeah, great, great pick, Great pick there as well. We got to have Tigger in a dunk contest, man. We got to have him. He's just that good all right for uh for my nom- for my number three pick, I may be reaching here a little bit, but I'll explain I'm going with Aladdin all right so he's he's agile, he's been living on the streets all right, and I think he's that's just gonna translate to him being a good defender and also being a really good ball handler he'll be able to weave into the paint and stay in front of anybody, so he'll probably run like that that guard spot for me, so I really like Aladdin there at three. Yeah, I like to pick, you know, a very Patrick Beverly-esque
0: type player, right? He he thinks that everybody's out to get him. He's going to be really, you know, sneaky like Pat Bev, play hard defense every night. So not necessarily the superstar, but a guy you need on your team. I like it. And, you know, I've got, I think my two superstars, I've got my floor general. So now we're just looking for role players, right? And I need a I need a shooter. I need a certified three-point shooter who I know is going to come in streaky every night but they can fill it up from deep if they get hot and we we haven't picked a woman yet so also i feel like we need some we need some feminism on our roster And so i'm gonna go merida from brave right one of the most accurate shooters uh ever and you know just watch the movie if you haven't seen you know her skill with the bow so i'm hoping that translates over to the basketball court you know there is there is some concern in the locker room right she's redheaded she can go off into the woods every once in a while and we don't hear from her for a couple of days. But if we get her in the team environment, we get her to buy in. Then that's the type of shooter I need on my team, and will once again be a good complement to what I've already
2: assembled. Yeah, Marido was on my my board too, purely for the the sharp shooting ability. So yeah, good pick there. Good pick there. For not for my number four pick, going the the role player out here as well. But I'm taking uh, Stitch. Um, so he's just gonna be all over the floor. I feel like he's gonna be a defensive animal. And uh he's athletic and agile as well. We see him, you know, in, in the movie jumping around and all this stuff, and he's just a nuisance. So I think, you know, if you could take Patrick Beverly and some of the other scrappers in in the NBA, the comp would be Stitch. So I gotta go stitch it for. Yeah, I really like the well-roundedness.
0: Uh, you're coming out of your roster here. I think we both kind of – we didn't necessarily go for the the most athletic all the way through, but guys that are really going to fit together on a team. And that's where I'm going with my fifth pick. I don't even like this guy because of his skill necessarily. But at this point in the draft, I need that Draymond Green, that Charles Oakley-type player that's going to enforce the rules on the rest of the team. He's going to protect my own players, and he's really just going to be, like you said, a nuisance on the court. And so that's why my last pick, I'm going with anger from inside out like I said, the skills may not be there, but if we need to get in a fight, if we need to set the tone, I know I'm gonna, what I'm going to get out of him every night. I know the defense is going to be there, and I know he's going to come with energy, and I've got all the skills necessary with Genie and with Tigger if he pans out, so I think at this point, I just need a team guy who's going to, you know, we might need him to be a Ron Artest every once in a while and go fight some fans in the crowd, and he'll do that for me, and so I think, at this point, like I said, just going for team fit over maybe some of the other some of the other skillful guys that people may say I should have picked there.
2: Yeah, I like that. He he's the the enforcer on the court. So yeah, definitely will be bringing that toughness to your team. All right, for my fifth pick, this one this one's a little bit more obscure in the Disney universe, but it's from the movie uh, Princess and the Frog, and it's the the guy who does the voodoo magic. Uh, Also known as Shadow Man in the movie, but his real name is Dr. Facilier. And if you just look at him in the movie, his arms just go on forever. So he's got to be, you know, we're talking about like six, nine. He he seems to move and like Kevin Durant. So I'm thinking, you know, he's going to be have that wingspan on defense. And I don't know. There's just something about him that just screams basketball player to me. So I got to go with him at number five.
0: Yeah, and technically, I didn't specify what they could or could not bring onto the court. So then, you know, the voodoo magic is in play as well as Aladdin's magic carpet. I feel like for you, and so yeah, I didn't even think about that when I was putting this team together as far as what what skills come with them. I mean, I I'm hoping that uh, that genie gets to keep some of those magical powers. But I think yeah, that's a really a really good pick to finish it off. So all right, I'll start with my team, and then Drew will say his through and. Uh, then we'll kind of conclude uh, the episode after that. But at my number one, Genie. Uh, number two, Remy from Ratatouille. Number three, Tigger. Number four, Merida, and number five, uh, Anger.
2: Number one for me was Hercules. Uh, number two, The Beast. Number three, Aladdin. Number four, Stitch, and number five, Doctor Facilier. I think
0: those are all both really good teams. A lot of a lot of characters that maybe people forgot about or maybe didn't expect to see make the list but like I said I think the scouts did well we really picked players that are going to actually develop and grow into their role on our respective teams so uh, you pick your own roster if you're listening or decide which one of us has the better team Uh, that's going to do it for us today I hope everyone likes listening to these we're going to keep trying to do some maybe not with Drew every time but certainly if anyone has any ideas for things you would like to do And please uh, hit me up and let me know. But we thank everyone for listening today. And we thank Drew for coming on. uh, And we'll see you next time.